0: Well, good morning. How do we know what's true? How do we determine truth? You see, we live in today in a culture that is turning truth on its head. Truth is under attack. We hear phrases such as, this is my truth, you know, and you have your truth, as if truth is, is dependent upon us. Some people say, in fact, that you can have opposite things both be true. People have said things like this, well, Jesus may be God to you, but he's not God to me. And rationally thinking, that's, that's insane. He's either God or he's not God, and we have nothing to do with that. But yet, that's the world we're living in, and how did we get here? Well, we could trace this back, this downward trajectory, has been in the work for centuries. You see, by the time the church had been established in the fourth century or so, they had clearly put the word of God at the hierarchy of truth. And in the Western civilization, if you wanted to know what's true, you went to the word of God. Then they had some teachings from the church leaders, like we had the the Heidelberg uh, Catechism or the Westminster Confession, the Canons of Dort, those truths that we have. And then you had reason and rationality to determine truth. And finally, at the bottom, you had personal experience and community. But in the middle ages, the church began to elevate the teachings of the church leaders above that of scripture and eventually supplanted it. So the teachings of the Pope were greater than the teachings of scripture. The Reformation sought to correct that. The Reformation sought, well, let's put things back in order. Let's put scripture on top again and sola scriptura. That's it, that's what we're gonna be. That's what we're gonna have. This is how we're gonna determine truth. But shortly after that, the enlightenment came. A man named Descartes was trying to solve a math problem and he he sat in an oven for three days trying to solve this math problem. And when he was done, all he could do was walk out and say, I think therefore I am. That was it reason and rationality. Now, what is what had to be elevated? The ancient, the old, the past had to be discarded because it's now only about the present and it would take centuries to work through. And we called it modernity, the the modern era. (coughs) And what we see is scripture was removed from the hierarchy of determining truth. And what we were left with was reason and rationality. But then after centuries of reason and rationality, centuries of modernity, there were two world wars that devastated the earth. And people began to say, I don't think reason and rationality is working anymore. And they threw it out. And they were left with... <coughs> with only personal experience and community. And that's how they made decisions and that's the world we live in. We live in a culture now that says, what I believe is true for me is what truth is. (coughs) And they say that, uh, excuse me, And they say, what truth is, is dependent on the person. And they say, that's what is how we determine truth. And we have some ridiculous things happening now, but scripture tells us that this is also a judgment from God. That in those times when a nation and when a people are under judgment, God turns them over to a debased mind, or your your, your Bible may say a reprobate mind. And what that means, it's a non-functioning mind. It's a mind that no longer has reason and rationality. It's a mind that can no longer really determine what's true and what's not true. And they're gonna be totally dependent upon what they believe and what they want. And so to those people, Christianity is like fingernails going down a chalkboard. Because not only do we hold to an ultimate truth, we hold to an absolute truth. We hold to an unchanging truth universal truths, we hold to the truth of a sovereign God who rules the universe and culture fights back. Culture doesn't like that. And sadly, some Christians today are beginning to falter. Well, they say maybe God didn't really mean what he said, or I probably just misunderstood him. And so people who once believed scripture and held to scripture are now starting to falter and follow culture. And failure to comply with culture today can get you canceled. We are accused of being on the wrong side of history. And soon it may cost us our jobs and our livelihood. And in a world that's now turned upside down in our culture, it's good to be reminded that God is in charge. It's good to know that we have that sure anchor. and You don't have to live in a culture like ours that's gone bonkers to need to be reminded of these truths. You can live in a different world as turned upside down for you, living in a foreign land as exiles, unable to worship your God as he prescribed. You may, may need to hear those words again. Comfort, comfort my people. And in today's text in chapter 41, we're gonna start with this cosmic quiz, a collective challenge to the Israelites in and to a group of imaginary foreigners. The one question test is this, who is sovereign over all of history? It's one question. Is it the rulers of the nations across the ages? Or are, these, are the mighty kings and princes of the earth, their own captains of their own destinies and their own fates? Or is it Yahweh? If you don't know the answer, don't worry. Isaiah's is gonna tell us what the answer is to that question. You just have to hold on. But why the quiz? What is Isaiah trying to do in this chapter? And it may surprise you that, that uh, Isaiah chapter 41 comes right after chapter 40. I mean right after it. And so, a lot of what Isaiah talked about in chapter 40, he's going to expand upon now in chapter 41. You see, he laid out some some great truths in chapter 40. But beginning in chapter 41 and, and running through the next several chapters, Isaiah kind of exposits what he said in chapter 40. He laid out these truths. He said, hey, these things, he asked some questions, but these things out here are true, and you need to know because this is what brings comfort. When you're in exile, when you're away from your homeland, When you cannot worship Yahweh as as you're supposed to, where do you turn for comfort? And Isaiah laid that out. He said, do people really not know about the greatness of Yahweh? See, in chapter 40, Isaiah began to answer this question by pointing out Yahweh's matchless knowledge and wisdom and his incomparable knowledge or understanding of justice. And to demonstrate his greatness even further, He reminds us that it was Yahweh that made and controls the stars in heaven. Do you not know about the greatness of Yahweh? Next, he said, are you really, and he says this twice, are you really going to compare Yahweh to idols? Is that really what you're going to do? Okay, this is almost embarrassing. Are are you really gonna compare Yahweh to idols that are made by human hands? They even have to hire skilled craftsmen to make sure it doesn't fall over. And that's what you're gonna compare to Yahweh? And then finally, do people know that it's Yahweh who renews the weary and gives strength? It's Yahweh who does that. Yahweh is everlasting. He's the creator of the heavens and earth. Earth, he doesn't grow faint, he doesn't grow weary. His storehouses of power and his storehouses uh, of might are limitless. He gives away power and strength for he is Yahweh. And chapter 40, verse one tells us that while, we were, while the exiles needed to know this, why they need to know it's and it's to bring them comfort. But this is also why we need to know these texts to comfort us when our world seems to be coming unraveled. So in in these 16 verses of chapter 41, we're gonna follow Isaiah's expanded answers to what he was talking about in chapter 40. We're gonna see in verses one through seven, the great question and the answer and the nation's pathetic response. Then in verses eight through 10, we're gonna see Yahweh's reassurance to Israel. Yahweh turns and, and directly addresses Israel to reaffirm his love for them and to tell them that he'll be their strength and help. And finally, verses 11 through 16, we are going to see that Yahweh will be the champion of Israel in battle. So we will conclude with five lessons I think we can learn from the text. Let's look at at verse 1. The scene changed from chapter 40, and what we see here now is Yahweh addressing the peoples of the earth. So he has this imaginary crowd, and he calls out to the coastlands, and the coastlands represent distant nations, distant lands, and he's calling the people of the earth together. And he's calling them together, and he wants Israel to hear what's happening. He wants those in exile to hear this, to know what's going on. And he says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak, and let us draw near for judgment. The scene here is unique. Although there's kind of some courtroom language in it, this really isn't a court proceeding. People and nations aren't named, just coastlands and peoples. And we can imagine that the attendees include Israelites plus people from across the world. And unlike other courtroom and judgment scenes in scripture, here there are no charges levied against anyone. It is not a courtroom scene. There's no pronouncement of judgment and punishment. Instead, Yahweh is announcing that it's decision time. That's what he means by judgment. Everyone called to this meeting, which is everybody on earth, should come with the intent to wait on the Lord and renew their strength, just like he said at the end of chapter 40. Yahweh is calling them to recognize him as a sovereign over all of history and to renew their strength by trusting in him. And it opens with this command. It's actually a command, listen to me in silence. In other words, be quiet, I need your attention. For the school teachers in the crowd, you have different ways of saying that, different ways of doing that, to get everybody to quiet down and listen because what you're about to say is important. And Yahweh is saying, what I'm about to say is important and I need your attention. I want you to consider this question that I'm about to propose, very important question. I'm talking to everybody, he says. You know, when he calls out to the coastlands, he, he's often calling out and, and demonstrating that he's got rule over all the earth. But he wants them to decide, which path are you going to follow? He's basically saying, time's up. You've come to that fork in the road. You have to choose one. You know, it's a, the, the saying, it's time to, to, to fish or cut bait. You've got to make a decision. You can't stay on the fence anymore. It's time to decide. And that's what he's calling them to here. You have to pick one. And he's saying, by the way, there is a right answer to this question. But perhaps to the the Jewish man or woman in the early sixth century BC, it wasn't as clear. You see, I believe Isaiah was writing to the exiles in Babylon in the sixth century BC. To them, the other nations gods seemed perhaps more powerful because they were now captives. To them, it looks like something's gone terribly wrong. They were no longer in their own land, serving under a Jewish king, worshiping in their temple in Jerusalem according to the way Yahweh prescribed and not knowing when this might end, if ever. And if we take a look at history, no nation has ever been completely defeated, taken captive to another land for generations, and then regained their national status in their ancestral home. That has never happened. So if you're a Jew in the the sixth century BC, in Babylon, in captivity, it's looking pretty grim for you. We're never gonna get back to our homeland, we're never gonna get back to, to worshiping Yahweh the way we're supposed to. What does this all mean? And to a sixth century Jew, this question is, is real. They wanna know the answer, they need to be comforted. They need to know the answer is Yahweh, that he really is in, tra- in charge and in control. But we can see how, how bleak this may have seemed to them. So Yahweh through Isaiah sets up a meeting between the Jews and these imaginary foreigners so he can make his case to the Jews why they should not fear but be comforted. And Yahweh addresses this meeting and poses the following question, who is in control of history? That's his question. He poses it another way. He asks about an unnamed ruler from the East. Who stirred up the one from the east, he asks, whom victory meets at every step, according to this translation, who gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot and makes them like dust with his sword and, and like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. And you know, This gets a little tricky here because your translation may some, say something a little different there in verse two. And there are differing opinions too on who this This one from the east really is. But that second line, some say whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. Or the NIV, calling him in righteousness to his service. And legacy standard, whom he calls in righteousness to his feet. The challenge with this verse, especially that second line, there are two words with multiple meanings and an idiom at the end. And how you interpret those really is going to depend on where you think the emphasis is. And so we read the ESV and it puts the emphasis on the one from the East who meets victory at every step. Other translations put the emphasis on the one, he says, who stirred him up, calling him in righteousness to his service. But the question translators try to answer regarding uh, the purpose of that line Uh, does it amplify the who or does it amplify the one from the east who did his bidding we'll get to that in a moment but the rest of the verses match up pretty well and so this one from the east who is coming this is the description he's given military power to conquer nations so this is someone who is coming and conquering but not just conquering Listen how it's done. He's so, oppo- he's so powerful that opposing kings are trampled pretty much like bugs under his feet. That's how freely he can move. And then it says he makes them like dust with his sword. That denotes great victories. With his sword, he's just wiping them away like dust. They're driven like chaff or stubble with his bow. That's describing massacres. These aren't just victories. These He comes in and he exerts his will and no one can stop him. That's what's happening. This, this one from the east. He pursues his enemies and no one can threaten him to even give him pause so that he passes on safely. He's given conquest of new lands where he's never set foot. This is a mighty one of the east who's coming. And the question is, who caused that to happen? And the real question is going to be, was it the gods of that king? Was it the gods of that one who did that? Or was it Yahweh? And that's the answer. Some people don't like the answer that it's Yahweh. They don't like to think that Yahweh could bring destruction like that. Habakkuk struggled, struggled with that. When Habakkuk said, look at this wicked nation of Israel, oh Lord, what are you gonna do? And he says, well, I got a plan, I'm gonna send the Chaldeans. And he's like, whoa, they're more wicked than us. Are you sure that's a good idea? And, and we don't like it that when God chooses to do this. But this is like that saying, behind every great man, there, there's a great woman. And the question here is, who is that person behind this unstoppable one from the east? Who caused him to come to power? Who decided which nations to attack? Who gave him victory at every step? Was it the idol? That little God? Does little gods have the ability to do this? Or was it Yahweh who did this? So who is this mysterious one from the east? Not surprisingly, there are several thoughts on who it might be probably the most common is they're going to say it's Cyrus of Persia. Why? Because in chapter 44, Cyrus is called out by name as the one that Yahweh uses to accomplish his purposes. He's going to use Cyrus to fulfill his promise of return of the people, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and the rebuilding of the temple. And the very next verse, Isaiah 45, 1, Yahweh again says he anointed Cyrus to come to great power so that he would, he would be able to accomplish all of the promises that Yahweh made to his people. So some people say, aha, it must be Cyrus that he's talking about. And that's why some people will translate that second line in verse two a little differently. The emphasis on the one who called him, not on his military conquests. And this also requires that this is a future event because Cyrus is about 150 years from the writing uh, of Isaiah right here. Now, others don't look forward, but they look to a contemporary event of Isaiah's day. And what had we been talking about as contemporary? And that is Sennacherib's attack, and Hezekiah, the king of Jerusalem, trying to defend. And we've been talking about that, and they say, well, this refers to Yahweh's rescue of Judah under Hezekiah. The one from the east is that great Assyrian king, Sennacherib. He did go about the surrounding areas and attacking cities and defeating them. And then he stood against Jerusalem ready to crush it too. But Yahweh provided victory. And still others say it's Abraham who came from the east. And some point to the messianic return of Christ coming from the east. In fact, if we want to look at conquerors from the east, we can add the four Mesopotamian kings who invaded Canaan in Abraham's day, Abraham's day, and took Lot captive. We can look at Sargon. We can look at Nebuchadnezzar. And ultimate fulfillment would be Christ when He does come in the future. But Yahweh in in verse 4 is going to answer this question of who purposed and who did this. Except this time He expands it from not just the one in the East, but He goes back to the beginning of time, all the way through to the end of time. And He's saying that Yahweh is responsible for all of this. Yahweh controls history. Yahweh is in charge of history. He has been the one who has called forth conquerors to carry out his will in the world. When the History Channel used to show us all the time, the world history of warfare, that was simply the outworking of, of God's sovereign plan. I actually liked the History Channel a lot better when it was the War Channel. And every show on there was about war and about that history because quite frankly, our history is loaded with warfare. But I told you I would give you the answer to the question, who is sovereign over all of history? It's Yahweh, the Lord God Almighty, the creator, the majestic one who rules over creation from his throne. It is him and no other. I don't see a lot of surprised faces out there, and that's good. (laughs) But this is also why I think that the one from the East is unnamed. He doesn't matter. Pick this one, pick that one. I'm not even gonna tell you the names. It doesn't matter. Yahweh will choose whom Yahweh chooses. If Yahweh wants to rise raise up a king to do his bidding, he'll do that. And I think that's why the author here leaves him unnamed because the emphasis is not on the one from the East. The emphasis on who controls the one from the east. Yahweh is the puppet master. Doesn't matter who the puppet is. And so I don't think it matters there. You see, he is sovereign over all things. And this is why we have no fear. God is in control. You see, there's not a generation. There's not a time. There's not even a, a moment or a nanosecond that is out of God's control. He never loses control. There isn't a galaxy or, or even a molecule or an atom or a, a cork within inside that atom that is outside of God's control. He is sovereign over all things. The emphasis here is on Yahweh. We serve a mighty, powerful Lord. There's never a moment that he forgets about us or doesn't see us. There's never even a circumstance in our lives where he's not with us. And even when one of his children sins against him, he is right there to forgive and to heal. An example of this we have is is the book of Esther. God isn't even mentioned in the book. And yet God is controlling all of the events. Do you think that the king, when he went to sleep or could not sleep and wanted to read something, do you think that, God didn't cause his insomnia That God didn't choose the right scroll to bring out so that he could he could hear about the Jewish hero you think that God didn't choose Esther and make this happen God was in control of all of it God is in control of all history but let's look at verses 5 through 7 and in these verses we see the response of the nations to this information. So the, the nations are looking, and we look at it two ways. We look at it as the nations are looking at this great invader, this great one from the east, and they're fearful. And the coastlands, it says, verse five, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, or strikes the anvil, saying of the solderer, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Again, in verse 1, Yahweh called all the peoples together to hear the evidence, and he promised he could renew their strength. But in verse 5, the scene unfolds, and the people have come together, and they're fearful. It is Yahweh who raises up these mighty kings and conquerors to do his bidding. Yahweh pulls the strings. The fearless and devastating one from the east is unstoppable because Yahweh is the instigator and the true power behind it. And when the coastlands hear this, their response is fear and trembling. They know that this king is very powerful and all their, the other little gods they have, they're fashioned by hand but what is their response instead of turning to Yahweh? Do they bow and knee to him? No, they decide to build better idols. They're gonna build better gods. In fact, they encourage one another to do this. They come together probably with lips quivering and shaking hands trying to carve another god to help them. The realization and the fear are so bad. They, uh, they all have to help and encourage one another. One, one says to his brother, be strong. You can almost hear him saying, we got this. As the block of wood or, or that lump of clay or, or that piece of metal is fashioned and begins to take shape of some imaginary God. You can almost hear them saying, give him longer arms. That will help. Make him look meaner. Or, or put a lightning bolt in his hand, that'll frighten everybody. What if we painted him red? Backstory, don't forget the backstory, make it a good one that everyone will believe that this, this God right here is more powerful than them. But it even gets crazier. They're so fearful. They each have to keep strengthening each other each step of the process of making their idol, they're trying to convince themselves that this will work. You're doing great, smelter of metal, the one who's, who's, who's trying to, to create the metal they're going to use. The finishing worker, the one who's going who's gonna to do the finishing work, is looking at the one who's pounding out the, the rough frame on the anvil and going, come on, you're doing good. And then finally here it says, <coughs> um, then almost as mocking of true God, when the the final worker welds the idol to its pedestal and they, they put it in place and they solder it in, they get it in place and they're almost like mocking God, going back to Genesis, say, it's good, this is good. No, God's creation was good. But Isaiah wants to show you just how ridiculous this is. It tells us that they look at one another and say, Better nail it down too, so it doesn't fall over. Do you see the hilarity of this situation? They thought they had just created a terrifying God who is supposed to stand against Yahweh and his purposes and is one from the East. And they're more concerned that a strong gust of wind or some clumsy worshiper might bump it and knock it over. This is no God. It's a piece of metal. Okay. Let's have that awkward discussion now about how ridiculous we sometimes behave when we're fearful. What do we do when we can't control our circumstances or the future? What are the man-made tottering idols we create instead of turning to God? As a man, sometimes I like to bury my head in my work. When things get tough, I'm just gonna spend more time at the office, just bury my head in work. I can do that, I'm pretty good at it. Or is it material possessions? If I just had the things, they will protect me. Will things protect you? And then it gets worse, it gets dark, and there's the world of addiction. Are drugs or alcohol your tottering idol? Look around this room. We talk about redemptive relationships, caring for the souls of one another. And I see men and women out here, though flawed as the day is long, who would do anything to help one another, who is also greatly flawed like them. We believe in these redemptive relationships. I see people who love Christ, who are broken by sin, clinging to the one who died in their place because all they have, uh, because Jesus is the only one who can help them. I see people here. Someone who is finally courageous enough to share their sins and struggles with others. And they see the head nods in the room and the love in their eyes of their fellow brothers and sisters who have been there too. Drop your idol, let it fall. Turn instead to Christ. We have, as Jared says over and over again, the most lethal weapon for change, for changing the human heart right here in our hands. It's the word of God. It is active and alive. It's not just something we say because we're a Bible church. We absolutely would die on that hill for that. We believe that the Bible and the word of God can change lives and that it will not return empty from the purpose that God has sent it out. We believe that we don't have to set up our little idols to protect us. And I encourage you to take advantage of the community that God has given to us here one another practice to one another's. This is what God has has called us to do. All right. Awkward discussion over. All right. We're going to look at the next three verses, eight through ten. It says, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In these verses, Yahweh wants to remind Israel of the sureness of his relationship with them, to them. And why? Why Why do they need this reassurance? Well, some say that this was written for Isaiah's contemporaries in the days of Hezekiah, when the armies of Sennacherib bore down on Jerusalem. They view these verses as as describing that event. However, this is a continuation of chapter 40, verse one, where Yahweh cries out, comfort, comfort my people, written to the Israelites in captivity in Babylon. These are people away from their homeland in bondage, unable to worship with no hope of being a nation again. So they had a very pragmatic view of their situation. Moreover, What does it mean to their relationship with Yahweh when they're not in the land they're supposed to be in, but exiles in another land? Are they still Yahweh's chosen people? Can Yahweh still use them? Or have they been abandoned to the garbage heap of history and will soon just rot away? So Yahweh assures them they are still his people and, and will still accomplish his purposes. Verse eight leads off by demonstrating just how special they are to Yahweh. First, they're described as Yahweh's servants, servant, someone who will carry out the will of God. A good servant is all about the will of the master. And though Israel has been unfaithful, Yahweh will nonetheless accomplish his will through them. And next, he calls them chosen. And this is beautiful. They were graciously selected by Yahweh And with that gracious selection comes this this sense of duty and privilege. When I was a a young captain in the Air Force, I was approached by really the number two guy in in our whole bomb wing, the director for uh, deputy commander for operations. And he came to me and he offered me the position of his executive officer. Now this Colonel had a reputation of being a, a real stickler. Let's go with that. His tolerance for failure was about zero, and his demands for his officers was nearly unattainable. Saying yes meant that I would be in for long hours in the office, long days, long weeks, and long months. And we were in the midst of the buildup for what would become Desert Storm at the time. This was no kidding war. Of course, when the Colonel asks you to be his executive officer, there's only one right answer, which is, sir, that's the best idea I've ever heard. And so uh, I knew that being chosen by him was was a a great privilege, but it was also a great duty that I had before me to fulfill. A great duty in that we were preparing for war and I had to be part of that. And also great privilege that this man who had so much power in the wing, I could approach him at any time. My office was right outside his door. He had to walk past me to get into his office every day. Israel was chosen by Yahweh, and they too had great privilege and duty. And finally, they're called the offspring of Abraham, my friend. The friends of your parents generally treat you well and have an automatic affection for you because of your parents. I knew that when my best friend's daughter was born, she and I were gonna be buddies. Yet unborn, I just knew that. And sure enough, Over the years, she and I became buddies because of the relationship I had with her dad. I had an automatic affection for her. Because of the relationship that Yahweh has, had with Abraham, that meant that the Israelites had that automatic relationship too. And so they were the offspring, the seed of Abraham and Yahweh called Abraham his friend. And he wanted to remind him, remind the Israelites of this special relationship they had. Finally, in verse nine, Yahweh, again, reminds Israel that he chose them and drew them from the far reaches of the earth. This probably points to the fact that he simply didn't choose the Canaanites who were already living in, in the promised land, what was to become Israel. But he reached out to Abraham of Ur and chose him to be a servant. Again, this points to privilege. And again, he reminds them that they are a servant meant to accomplish his will. And finally, he assures them he won't cast them off or reject them. He will keep them. His, this commitment is the basis, the foundation for all that he will say to Israel when he tells them not to be afraid. He is on their side. Yahweh's not going anywhere. And that's what he says in verse 10. Look at the promises. He says, I am with you. Does that remind you of the promise we have from Christ who said he will never leave us or forsake us? He says, I am your God, prefaced by do not be dismayed. He wanted to lift our countenance. He said, I will strengthen you. Go back to the previous chapter. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength, unlike the idol makers who tried to strengthen one another. He says, I will help you, not just in battle, but even in exile and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, a symbol of strength in doing what is right. The theme here is do not fear. And just like Israel, we have many promises of God as his children so that we do not have to fear anything. We do not have to fear that we can't earn our salvation because Christ has paid our debt in full. I don't have to worry about doing enough good works to earn salvation. Christ has paid. I don't have to fear opposition because I know that Christ conquers all. I don't have to fear losing my salvation because I did nothing to earn it. I can do nothing to lose it. I don't have to fear judgment on that day when the great judge sits on his throne because Christ died for my sins. And I don't even have to fear persecution because God still rules on his throne and he promised his blessing for suffering. We don't have to fear either. The final portion of our text, the last six verses, describes battle, describes warfare. Enemies arrange themselves against Israel, but Yahweh will intervene and bring victory. I like how this section begins. Isaiah says, behold, You see, he's just given a list of promises from Yahweh to Israel. And now, almost like an effective infomercial, he says, but wait, there's more. I should probably never compare a prophet to an infomercial. (laughs) But Isaiah does have more to share. He has more promises, more good news. And when Yahweh is the one who helps and strengthens, enemies are as chaff in the wind. Behold, all you who are incensed, all who are incensed against you, shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord. Hold, uh, for I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. The prophet calls and tries to get everybody's attention with, Behold! Then he describes the enemy that's strongly enraged against Israel. They they are seething. It's like they're angry, and they're massing their forces against Israel. And they're out there, and they're arrayed against them. While the enemy's not identified, it does refer to a future battle. There are a couple battles that it could be. It could be against Sennacherib. It could have been... uh, against Nebuchadnezzar, or it could be the future battle that is to come for all of us. But here's what happens. These enemies, they've got their hair on fire, they've got blood in their eyes, they're enraged, and they will both be put to shame and confounded. Yahweh will do that. And those who strive against them will be as nothing and they shall die. And again, Yahweh will do that. The Jews will seek their attackers and not find them because they're nothing at all. God will miraculously destroy their enemies. Verse 13 reminds them that Yahweh fights for them. The picture here is not simply of Yahweh being present, but holding their right hand. What's significant for this? Most people are right-handed and when you go into battle, you have your weapon in your right hand. In the military, it was protocol that the junior member would walk to the left of the senior member. And it argued back centuries to the time of swords that if there were an attacker to come, the junior officer has the freedom to draw his sword and to defend. Whereas if the senior officer was right next to him, he might not be able to draw his sword as effectively. So they were there and the sword's in the right hand. Well, now imagine you're trying to fight and you got your sword in your right hand, but what does God say? He says, I'm holding your right hand. If Yahweh is holding their right hand, who's doing the fighting? Only Yahweh can do it. He's holding on to their hand while Yahweh does battle for them. Isaiah reminds us of that. The next three verses are different. In here, Yahweh strengthens and enables Israel to fight and win their battles. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. and You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And You shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. There is language in here that certainly nullifies this wasn't the battle against Nebuchadnezzar, and it also eliminates the battle against Sennacherib. I think this is the last battle. This is the last battle of the tribulation. This is when it all culminates, and Israel's described as a worm. And I don't think they're saying that that Israel had no way to defend themselves. I I think what it's saying is describing the comparison. When Sennacherib came, he had 185,000 troops. We see from scripture in the final battle, they're gonna be millions of troops against little Israel. And in comparison, they're gonna look like a worm to that. You're, you're, You're just a little worm, kind of defenseless against these millions who are arraying against you. And we're also now introduced to the redeemer who will help. To be a redeemer, you had to be a near kinsman. There's only one person in all of history who could be both a near kinsman and the holy one of Israel. And that saying always refers to God. And that's Christ himself. But he says here that Israel will be made a threshing sledge. A threshing sledge was used by the farmers and what they would do is they wanted to separate the grain from the stock. And so what they did is they would put these boards together, and they would build basically a big uh, instrument like this, and they would have holes in it. And they would in those holes, they'd put pieces of metal and sharp rocks and things like that. They would lay it down on top piles of grain and just drag it. And with those teeth and, and those pieces of metal would just rip apart the stalks and separate the, 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 chain, uh, sorry, the grain from the stock so that they could harvest this. Then they could take those pieces of stock, which are chaff, and, and just toss them in the air and the wind will blow them away. He says, that's what I'm gonna make you, except you're not going after grain. You're gonna, you're gonna move mountains with this thing. You're gonna tear them down. So he's describing this, Israel will be part of the fighting, but the ultimate victory will belong to Christ. And then finally, they will recognize and worship the Holy One of Israel, which is their redeemer. Yahweh will pour out a spirit of grace and mercy so that the people will finally recognize Christ for who he is in this battle. In this final battle, the world will array against Israel. They'll come from the corners of the earth to do battle. And even this is from the Lord. At overwhelming odds, Israel will fight against the invaders. Many, many will die so that the blood of the slain will rise to the horse's bridle, it says. And at this time, Christ will return and deal the final blow to the enemies of God. He comes as the Redeemer, don't look for another. So what do we do with this passage to apply it to our lives? We're talking about Israel. We're talking about things that happened B.C. Can it have any application to us? I think the first thing we need to do is remember that God is the sovereign God over all of history. Nothing happens contrary to his will. Therefore, we need to see the folly in clinging to idols who can do nothing for us and trust God. Examine your past responses to adversity. If it was not turning to God and clinging to Christ, what did you do during adversity? What idols did you set up? Remove those idols. Also, when we realize that God is the sovereign God over all of history, we cling tightly to the promises in scripture. The world and the culture have gone crazy, but we don't have to worry about being on the wrong side of history. When we worship the sovereign God who is sovereign over all of history, we don't have to worry. Also, we can encourage one another with truth and not vain worldly thoughts. Do not be like the idol makers, encouraging each other with false hope. We can point people to the glorious hope we have in Christ and in his return. Number two, do not fear this world for if God is for us, who can be against us? So one, we can go out boldly proclaiming Christ. We don't have to fear rejection or even persecution. If God is for us, we need no other. And finally, we need to know the promises of God so we can walk in confidence. I know we hear this week after week, but it's all true. We need to read our Bibles daily. We need to be in the word of God. We need to memorize, we need to meditate this is our best defense for these crazy times that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the truths in it, which we behold. We do worship you not only as the sovereign God over all creation, but the sovereign God over all of history. Still, we confess that trusting you during adversity is not easy and rarely is it, is it the first reaction we have in our hearts. Yet you are patient and compassionate, and you wait for us to wait upon you so that we can be strengthened. You are faithful even when we are not. Help us in these times by granting to us wisdom and understanding. And we pray all of this through your Son and by the Spirit.